In recent weeks, I've been thinking about the tendency for the millennial generation, mine, to infantilize ourselves. Usually brought up in the term adulting which we use, which I personally find a little embarrassing. But in the context of this episode, I want to talk about the millennials' tendency to hold on to childhood fandoms far too long, he said knowingly. This is often done because of the arc of the economy just plunging as soon as we reach college age. Millennials have been denied jobs with uh, any kind of security, health insurance, home ownership, all those other things. We have to find our solace in something, and that means taking the things we liked when we were eight and forcing them to grow up along with us. I am personally familiar with this through my own comics fandom. I've had plenty of instances where people are trying to do a mature version of characters that were very clearly made to be consumed by children for a couple of years and then abandoned once they reach a certain level of literacy. Now, in my childhood, this was usually done by making the characters, like, incredibly violent and sexual, which is usually done, at least on paper, to make them more, like, transgressive, taking the thing you liked when you were a kid and making it dangerous. Uh, we talked about this in previous episodes, particularly episodes about, you know, killer Santas and slasher movies that happened <laughs> during Christmas. In the case of superhero comics, in many instances, this comes off as pretty sophomoric. Your uh, grimdark Christopher Nolan Batman is just as goofy as the Adam West Batman, just in a different way, really. Yeah, and I think the Adam West Batman, the goofy is more fun versus cringe. I'm usually sympathetic to that argument as well. But another way that we try to force our superhero comics to grow up with us is to make them real galaxy-brained. And I'm using that in the pejorative (laughs) sense. The idea of like, yeah, Elon Musk taking a hit on Joe Rogan's podcast and talking about how we're all actually living in a computer, that kind of thing. The guy who's talking about the, the concepts and terms that you hear in a 10th grade philosophy class. Yeah, Not Thanos that this, was right, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and this show often goes there. <laughs> and in the spirit of that, we're going to be talking about the 1998 Saturday morning cartoon version of The Silver Surfer. I watched a couple episodes when it first came out. I think it was, when, when was I, 12, 13 years old when I saw them. And I didn't get super into it. It wasn't on air for very long, but rediscovering it because it's on Disney Plus now, I found out that it has a bunch of Star Trek writers. And I was like, oh, Rachel will be an interesting counterpoint yeah, for an episode I love about Star that. Trek. I am always happy to talk about Star Trek. So, yeah, here we are. We're talking about the Silver Surfer cartoon. My name is Ryan's Real Deep Dive. And I'm Rachel Beck once again. You know, usually this is the part where I ask the co-host about their connection to the material, but you don't have a connection uh, to the material. No, I was too young to watch it when it was on originally, and also I watched The Silver, sorry, Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer when it came out in theaters once, and I thought it was kind of dumb, and I don't know, I was kind of expecting Silver Surfer to talk with the voice of Lawrence Fishburne. While we're watching this, I had to remind you, like, what Galactus's deal was, so I, I can't imagine that that Rise of the Silver Surfer movie left much of an impact on you. Yeah, now I kind of remember that there was a Galactus, but he wasn't a person, he was just a cloud. Yeah, a lot of people were pissed off about the cloud. That goes back to pre-MCU uh, superhero movies that felt a little embarrassed by the more outright aspects of its source material and tried to cover it up a little bit. Like, you know, the X-Men wearing leather costumes like in the Matrix rather than the more colorful version or, you know, Blade barely being a superhero movie. Whereas now, they kind of embrace that. The space raccoon is just like, yeah, I'm a raccoon. This is goofy-ass shit. Let's have some fun with it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fine with Galactus being this giant purple dude with a tuning fork helmet. Yeah, Bring I was it like, on. I thought you said all that hell is his helmet a tuning fork. I think he looks like a tiki torch. A little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's, uh... Yeah. Go into the background of the character. The Silver Surfer was created by Jack Kirby and first appeared in Fantastic Four number 48 in 1966. This is the start of the Galactus trilogy, as fans later dubbed it, which they often consider the apex of Marvel Comics, period. Now, the issue was to feature a cosmic, godlike predator that devoured planets. 
Kirby felt that such a figure should have a herald. Some people talk about a herald in more like the medieval sense of the term. Uh, although, whenever somebody says herald to me because of my Catholic background, I think of the archangel. Yeah, I'm thinking of like the Silver Surfer being like a trippy version of, say, the Metatron or the Archangel Gabriel. And the character has definitely been interpreted in that capacity. <laughs> Now, initially, this Silver Surfer guy helped his master seek out worlds to eat, but he betrays Galactus in a fit of compassion over the course of the storyline. Because of this, he gets stripped of his spacefaring abilities and is exiled to Earth for his crimes. Kirby designed him with a flying surfboard because he was tired of drawing spaceships. Honestly, that's, that's, to me, that's the most relatable part of the story is that he was tired of drawing spaceships. Yeah, a, a surfboard, it's literally like just a giant long oval. And while this is more apparent amongst people who aren't super into comics, Stanley did not create all of the Marvel superheroes by himself. He employed something that is now called the Marvel Method in order to script 15 books a month, where he would essentially give his artists a, a paragraph or sometimes just a sentence, like Spider-Man fights the Green Goblin in this issue, and then they would produce the art and then hand it back to him, and then he'd fill in captions and dialogue after the fact. Hmm. In his collaborations with Kirby, they'd meet for story conferences on occasion, and then Kirby would deliver the art with uh, little notes written in the margins over, you know, what the characters are saying. The first question that Lee asked Kirby after he got the Fantastic Four 48 pages back was, who's the guy on the surfboard? <laughs> But the character uh, caught on. He was a recurring character in the Fantastic Four for the next couple of years. The readers demanded that he get his own solo book, and once Marvel was free to expand their line further, they were undercut for legal reasons that I should, probably shouldn't be getting into. The Surfer got a solo comic in 1968. Because of the Surfer's popularity, this is twice the length of normal comics. I had the price point of 25 cents rather than your typical comic of the day, which is 12 cents. Ooh, I wonder what that is with inflation. This series focused on the Silver Surfer's struggles to understand humanity's folly, particularly in their irrational fear and hatred of him for being different. This shtick worked for Spider-Man, the Hulk, and eventually the X-Men, so why not here? Yeah, it's like, this sounds very familiar. Certain characters, especially ongoing comic characters who get handed from creator to creator for decades or more, have what I call a default setting. This is stuff that they'll sort of do naturally if the writer just sticks to the established patterns without <laughs> imposing their own personality too much. For example, the X-Men will whine endlessly about how much society hates them until you give them a bad guy to fight. More familiar to Rachel would be the Punisher's penchant for soliloquizing about his methods for killing his targets. Yeah. The Silver Surfer's thing is that he's a sad boy emo who pontificates. Yeah, you know what? When I was reading your notes before this, I just skipped that paragraph that you're about to give as an example because I was like, I even I don't want to read this. Yeah, this is some <laughs> uh, Stan Lee dialogue from the very first issue of The Silver Surfer, just to give you a vibe of what his deal is. This is very, very typical of the sort of thing he says. In all galaxies, in all the endless reaches of space, I have found no planet more blessed than this, no world more lavishly endowed with natural beauty, with gentle climate, with every ingredient to create a virtual living paradise, possessed of rainfall and great abundance, <laughs> soil fertile enough to feed a galaxy. Uh, yeah, I would be looking at my phone right now if I and, could. <laughs> and the sun, ever warm, ever constant, ever symbolizing new life, new hope. It is, though, the human race has been divinely favored over all who live. And yet, sounds like some, some paragraph, some like medieval religious guy wrote. <laughs> There's be more yees and like vines in there. And yet, in their uncontrollable insanity, in their unforgivable blindness, they seek to destroy the shining jewel, the softly spinning gem, this tiny blessed sphere which men call Earth. While trapped upon this world of madness, stand I. How much longer am I destined to endure a fate I cannot even comprehend? Do you mean listening to you read that? <laughs> so that was a page from the Silver Surfer's first issue. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm being mean. I said that when we started watching the episodes, I wasn't going to be mean. I was going to give this its, its fair shake. 
So. <laughs> also, to describe the artwork for this, uh, the Silver Surfer is sprawled across his board with his arm over his eyes, like a Victorian woman on her fainting couch. I was going to say Hamlet. Yeah. John Buscema penciled the first 17 issues. Jack Kirby came on for an 18th issue, signaling a change in creative direction because this was not a popular received series when it first came out. I wonder why. But that proved to be the final issue. Lee, who had grown very fond of the character and poured a lot of himself into the book, he thought he was venting his personal feelings and philosophies with the surfer as his focal point and mouthpiece. Okay. And he was sorely disappointed that the series was not well-received, although it has since become a cult favorite among some of the uh, Marvel obsessives. Shortly afterwards, Stan Lee stopped writing for Marvel full-time, moving west to act as a liaison for movie and TV studios and sort of serving as Marvel's friendly mascot, which he more or less did until he died. Mm-hmm. The Silver Surfer eventually got a new solo book in 1987. In this one, the Surfer was allowed to leave Earth and, you know, fight alien bad guys. There was less of a focus on philosophy, although it was still there. And this is replaced usually with cosmic stoner logic. Noteworthy runs were scripted by Steve Englehart and Jim Starlin. The series ran for 146 issues through 1998, which is the launch of this cartoon. The show was produced by Saban and aired on Fox Kids on Saturday morning, shortly after the Spider-Man and X-Men cartoons concluded, both of which were incredibly popular. Yeah, we gotta get that good merchandising money. The series was overseen by Larry Brody, who had written for the Spider-Man cartoon, and he also had some credits on Star Trek Voyager and the 1973 Star Trek The Animated Series, which I've never seen a single episode I've of. I've seen one episode of it, and, alright, well, as a kid, when I was five years old, I would watch Voyager with my parents, and I really liked it because even at five years old, I knew that it was special and important that Captain Janeway was a woman. As we sit in my room recording this, you can see Captain Janeway, she's sitting on my bookshelf because I desperately wanted her as a doll when I was five. But... Needless to say, there's a reason why I haven't watched Voyager since I was five. (laughs) I've heard mixed things from Star Trek people about Voyager. Pete's into it. Brody wrote the Star Trek Voyager episode tattoo. I have no idea if that's a good or a bad Um, one. Here, I'll give you a brief summary. So there's supposed to be a Native American character in Voyager, but he was not, they hired somebody as a consultant who was basically a pretend, it was Rachel Dolezaling it, so he wasn't a real, like, Native American or Indigenous person, so it's supposed to be like, we're gonna, we're gonna have the, the Native character explain his facial tattoo, but it's like, it's not based off of any sort of real Native American stuff, so... That's my bad summary. <laughs> yeah, I think Pete talked about this guy. He's like this uh, Italian-American dude who pretended to be, you know, a First Nations person. Yeah. And he consulted on a bunch of Hollywood movies throughout the 90s, including, like, that Disney Pocahontas thing. That was a train wreck. I forget his name, but, yeah, that's embarrassing. Yeah, the character's name, not, not the guy, not the fake guy, but the character in Chakotay. And I don't even know, is Robert Beltran indigenous? I don't know. Never mind. We're not talking about Star Trek Voyager here, anyway. <laughs> and the animated episode he wrote was The Magics of Megas 2. I have no idea if that's a good or a bad one. The show's animation blends traditional hand-drawn cell animation with CGI. Very 1998 CGI. This is some Windows 98-looking oh, stuff right yeah. there. Oh, um, yeah. Honestly, when we were watching it, I was like, wow, the animation style changes every single shot. <laughs> yeah, when the Silver Surfer is in space, there's a lot more computer stuff going on. Like, the background, like, the actual, like, space space. Looks pretty cool. I was impressed with the inside of Galactus, but other than that, it's just very like, oh, they were trying so hard back then. I bet this looked real cool if you didn't have 30 years of advancements to draw back on when you're rewatching this. Yeah. Uh, the character design and the cell animation used Jack Kirby's art style. Whenever he's in space, the, you got that Kirby crackle, those black dots in the background. Although Kirby usually used them as negative space, which the show is kind of iffy about. 
whenever the characters are moving around, they have, like, arbitrary shade blobs on them that don't really have a light source, which is very Kirby. Yeah, when we were watching it, seeing Norrin Rad, right? Seeing yeah. him, he was bald, and he was wearing green. I, like, turned to him, like, I want to be, like, Lex Luthor? that you? There were some changes made between the Silver Surface comics canon and how he appears in the show. For example, the Fantastic Four were removed from his origin entirely. Uh, when Thanos shows up, he is worshipping Lady you Chaos mean, instead you of the You mean Death. Galactus, right? Oh, no, Thanos does appear. I didn't watch any of the episodes. Yeah, Thanos is on the show. And also, Mentor is Thanos' brother on the show instead of his father. This is a mistake the show made because of a typo. Mentor? You mean, like, the, the mentor guy on Zenny Law? Uh, no, there's another mentor guy who's Thanos' dad. Oh, but, uh, okay. yeah, When Jim Starlin created Thanos, he was taking psychology classes in college at the same time. He didn't think uh, comics would be a main career for him. He thought the comics industry would collapse in like 10 years and he should get a real big boy job once that happens. <laughs> so he decided to use various yeah. concepts. And one psychological concept is the idea of Thanatos and Eros symbolizing, you know, the fear of death and your lust being the two main motivating factors in everything you do. And he decided that he should have characters that personify that, and he shortened Thanatos to Thanos. Mm-hmm. Storytelling themes throughout the 13 episodes of the show surround slavery, imperialism, nonviolence, and environmental degradation. We'll be going into the show's attempts to preach about those subjects to its 10-year-old audience later on. You know what? If that's how you're introduced to some complicated stuff, then good. I mean, I can thank Star Trek and, like, Avatar The Last Airbender for doing that for me as a kid. There's a lot of old-school sci-fi stuff. Two episodes are named after Isaac Asimov. One is called Second Foundation and End of Eternity. The one we are talking about is The Forever War, which is the DC Fontana episode. is named after a novel written by Joel Haldeman. Well, you know, more on that in a bit. (laughs) But first... Plot recap of the origin of the Silver Surfer. This is a three-parter. I am only going to recap the first episode in detail. Yeah, I was. You just, you just gave me the dates, and then we watched the next one. Norrin Rad is an astronomer on the idyllic world of Zen Law, a beacon of peace and enlightenment for the galaxy. Most of Zen Law's citizens are complacent with their utopian lifestyle, but Rad is curious about exploring the unknown. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, he is also betrothed to Shala Ball. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that you were going to find the Silver Surfer's homeworld <laughs> to be the goofy name, okay, but Lena, it's like, the love interest that got yeah, you. Alright, all right, Lena, like, I grew up watching Star Trek. People with funny names, like, there was a guy named Worf and Mr. Spock. That's normal, but Shala Ball, like, it, it's like, it just sounds funny to me. Like, Shala, Shala would be fine. Ball is stupid, but, like, it would be passable. Put them together, it just it makes me laugh. Yes, I'm immature. <laughs> Zen laws are receiving dignitaries from the Kree and the Skrull worlds. They are the two races that are constantly at war with each other over the fate of the universe. Yeah, I thought that the Kree and the Skull represent Skrull representatives in this episode were going to be like, you know, recurring characters. You know, they play off each other and they would, you know, slowly form a, you know, Legolas and Gimli like friendship and respect for each other. But no, they get vaporized like slightly past the halfway point. I was like, oh, okay. Zenlaw is given a warning by Uatu, the Watcher, an omnipotent being contained by a pledge of non-interference that he frequently bends. I had to tell you what a Watcher is. He was like, who's that guy with the baby head? I was like, who's the baby head? Yeah, I, I mean, I was like, oh, he's like Q if he wasn't a bastard. Another Star Trek reference, but... <sighs> What was I thinking of? Like, I was, the fact that he's like a watcher, I was like, it feels very much like the deist version of a god, all powerful, but isn't going to do anything. The watcher is an odd character, especially since, as any zoologist will tell you, it is impossible to observe an environment without changing it. Yeah. Especially since one of the Watcher's things is if something becomes super important, like the life or death of the universe depends on it, he will appear and people can see him watching them. Yeah, it's not like he's he's invisible all the time or, or something. Well, he could choose to be invisible, but he just keeps showing up being like, Hi, I'm the Watcher. I can't do anything, but here I am watching you. Ooh, I want to 
want to be dramatic, but it's true though. When he said that even if you try to watch in Burma, you can change it. I mean, do you remember like this like troop of monkeys? They had a robot, a baby robot monkey that was supposed to be like a camera to observe it, and then it broke. And so everybody, all the monkeys in the troop thought that the baby robot monkey died. So they had a funeral for him, and this is all recorded. They were all grieving the death of this little robot monkey. They they traumatized the monkeys for science. Tati, I'm watching you. Know not what you do. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the Watcher breaks his vow to uh, warn Zenlaw that they are about to be invaded by the Invincible Galactus, a godlike creature that devours worlds. He's purple and blue. Sorry, he's pink and blue. Determined to save Zenlaw, Norn Rad offers to sacrifice himself to Galactus. He volunteers to be transformed into a scout that can seek out worlds without intelligent life, so Galactus won't have to destroy civilizations to sate his endless hunger. This means abandoning Zenlaw and his beloved fiance Shalabal. <laughs> but Norn feels that he has no choice. Galactus gives up a portion of his power to turn Rad into the Silver Surfer, a powerful entity who can hurl cosmic bolts, heal the wounded because that's important for his job, withstand the energy of an exploding star, and fly faster than the speed of light. Galactus also strips Rad of his memories and moral convictions. And that's the end of the first episode. The next two involve the surfer just participating in the destruction of trillions of lives. Now, this eats away to him for reasons that he can't quite understand. He has no memories. As soon as he becomes the silver surfer, he offers to feed Zen Law to Galactus. And he's like, no, that is not for one such as we. I made a promise to a noble man to never eat that world. Yeah, I'm surprised Galactus actually went along with it. However, the surfer's memories are returned to him after encounters with Thanos and Ego, the living planet. He rebels against Galactus when uh, his next meal is to be Earth, because it reminds Silver Surfer of a primitive Zen law. Galactus, after failing to eat Earth, frees the Silver Surfer from his servitude, but moves Zen law so that he can never return home. The surfer spends the rest of the series searching for his home world. Yeah, I can kind of just imagine Galactus just flicking it like a marble and just all the way through space. You're not entirely wrong. <laughs> Getting into the theme surrounding this particular episode, one thing that I definitely wanted to talk about, even when I was in the very loose planning stages of this episode, is the Silver Surfer's culpability, which is something that fluctuates depending on the creative team. In his earliest appearances, the ones where Jack Kirby still had control over the character, the Surfer is very much an alien being that doesn't have emotions and has to learn what it's like to have feelings. Yeah, that's kind of how he was in what I can remember of Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer. Stanley is the one who provided the Zen Law origin in the first issue of his 1968 series. Lee also had the Surfer seek out worlds without intelligent life, only turning to Earth out of desperation. This feels like a bit of a cop-out to me, especially since throughout Stanley's Silver Surfer 1968 series, the Silver Surfer is portrayed as a noble, sinless knight in shining armor. <laughs> Even though he was a participant in the destruction of trillions of lives. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about culpability, there's, I had already asked you if uh, J. Michael Stradinsky was involved in writing in this show, because some things were maybe like, no, it's kind of like Babylon 5 a little bit. But uh, there's an episode of Babylon 5 where a Catholic monk living on the station is revealed to have been a, a serial killer who suffered death of personality, where like they mind wipe somebody and you spend the rest of your life with like, you know, as like a servant to repay your debt. So the whole point is that now that he kind of knows, even though he's a good person now, that he was a serial killer in other life, he wonders about, you know, what's going to happen when he dies. Like, how can he ask God to forgive him for his sins if he doesn't know what they are? So that one made me think of that a little bit. That is a very Catholic thing, because you have to acknowledge your wrongdoing and confess it, otherwise you can't be forgiven. Yeah, his spiritual the father, the, um, the head monk on the station, tells him that even if he doesn't know what his sins are, God does. I don't know for sure, but I believe Babylon 5 is running more or less concurrently with the show. Um, it would have ended around this time. Yeah, so maybe there's just something in the air. I bet plenty of people who were involved in the Silver Surfer Saturday morning cartoon were watching Babylon 5. I had never seen a single episode, but if you say there are parallels, I'm going to take your word for it. Sure, it's just when you ask about culpability, and that, that just made me think of 
that episode. This series uses the mind wipe angle where the Silver Surfer is stripped of his memories and morality before when he's transformed. That feels like even more of a cop-out to me. Okay, but it's meant for kids, Ryan. Remember the target audience. Another episode that we're not going to talk about in detail is called Radical Justice. It was written by Brody along with Brooks Watchdell. This is an episode where the Silver Surfer is captured by the survivors of the worlds that he helped to destroy. And then they put him on trial for mass murder. And how how does he get out of it? Well, they give him a, a death sentence that is, like, over-elaborate, but then they themselves are placed into mortal peril, and then he helps to extricate themselves from the situation and is able to sneak out the back door. That's about to be like, well, he can't die, mostly. The level of Silver Surfer's responsibility for what he did under Galactus's service is something that many creative teams have explored with the character over the years. Dan Slott and Mike Allred's Silver Surfer run, the most recent one that is considered something of a, a classic amongst uh, comics nerds, explores pretty deeply how the Silver Surfer is responsible for intergalactic genocide. The most recent one being Donny Cates and Trad Moore's incredibly psychedelic Silver Surfer Black, where the Surfer gets thrown into this sort of time loop odyssey where he goes back to the dawn of the universe. He weighs the possibility of killing Galactus before he's born, sort of a, will you kill baby Hitler in the crib? <laughs> yeah, he fails to do that, but he winds up seeding life on every world that he eventually leads Galactus to later on in the future. So basically he killed his own grandkids in the future? <laughs> the series frames this as bringing things full circle, but it kind of makes me feel that the Silver Surfer is more of a factory farmer. Yeah, I like to think it was just that one episode of Futurama where he's like, I'm my own grandpa! <laughs> a little bit. And many Silver Surfer adventures are framed as the character doing what he does as sort of an act of penance. One motif that he's bringing up are, are there certain crimes that can't be forgiven? Which, as a Catholic, I am quite familiar yeah, with. Yeah, I was about to be like, penance? Sins? Yeah, you're talking my language now. <laughs> because in, in theory, in the Catholic background, it doesn't matter how horrible the crime is that you've committed. If you are genuinely, sincerely ashamed of what you've done and are seeking absolution, you can find it. That's the whole reason that the priest that you confess to is not allowed to divulge it to anyone, because that's supposed to be between you and God, even if man's law will not allow that. Well, maybe we have to have an episode about I Confess, the Alfred Hitchcock one. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about that one. That'd be an interesting episode. All right. Well, we'll, we'll put that in the dark for the future. You know, recently I saw a Philosophy 2 episode where Abigail Thorne talks about the death penalty and frames it as a dichotomy between consequentialism and retribution. Because a decent ongoing argument is whether the point of justice is to either prevent crimes from being occurred or to punish criminals for doing it. Now, on its face, it feels rather cruel to be like, I, uh, that person hurt me and I want to hurt them back. That is very lizard brain logic. It will not go far in a philosophy class, as Abigail points it out herself. However... Outside of the philosophy class, the world can often be more complicated and your feelings get in the way. Uh, it makes me think of a documentary I saw about Jeffrey Dahmer. And one of the mothers of the people that Jeffrey Dahmer killed and ate, she said, I forgive Jeffrey Dahmer because he was insane. And I was like, that woman is a better person than me. I don't think I'm capable of that. In like an abstract divorce from my personal feeling sense, I am against the death penalty. It is not a deterrent. It is a waste of resources. And I believe it is unjust if even one person is executed for a crime that they don't commit. However, if someone who means a great deal to me is raped and eaten by someone like Jeffrey Dahmer... That would yeah. that would change everything for me. I can't say that I would be able to approach that disassociated perspective on it. Yeah, there was a recent uh, when uh, 45 was finding all of those uh, executions to go through. There was one for one of the women. She was abused her entire life, was incredibly mentally ill, but she killed an, a pregnant woman and took her baby out. The woman died, her baby lived. The family once wanted her to be executed, but, like, could you still execute this woman if she had no idea of what reality is now, 20 years in prison? It's tough. Uh, Abigail, when she's 
framing consequentialism versus retribution. She brings up, say, detainment of refugee babies in concentration camps. Now, a consequentialist who believes that the death penalty isn't a deterrent and is purely interested in keeping crime from happening would be like, well, putting refugee babies in concentration camps stems illegal immigration. This is something that needs to be done. However, a retributionist would be like, no, those refugee babies didn't do anything wrong. They don't deserve that. Yeah, it's sort of, we could, we could talk all day about, like, people deserving horrible things happening to them or what, how, the idea of justice, like, to greatly summarize the murder of Dee Dee Blanchard by her daughter, her daughter's name, I'll say, has a racial slur in it, I will only use it because it is her name, uh, Gypsy Rose Blanchard. This woman did the whole Munchausen by proxy to this girl for her entire life. She fell through every single crack in society that would have protected her. She had no resources or any chance that anyone would believe her. She and her boyfriend killed her mother. Now, everybody in that woman's family, Dee Dee Blanchard's family, they all say that she had it coming and she deserved it. Her own father flushed her ashes down the toilet. Yet, Gypsy Rose is still in prison for the next couple of years. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Other people thought that she ought to get less. That's another thing that Abigail brings up in her in her video, because, you know, your background has a direct impact on how the justice system treats you. Like, if you have a mental illness and you come from wealth and security, you can get treated for that. Whereas, if you come from a working class family, you could very much wind up on the street and then in prison. Or, say, casual drug use. If you come from an affluent family, you can often use that without consequences, and there's sources of treatment if you desire them. However, if you come from a family that's living from paycheck to paycheck, suddenly you get caught with a one-hitter and you're in prison for 15 years. Yeah, I guess going to show you how intersectionality is so important when examining social issues, because as much as we humans want, really want there to be an easy solution to our social problems, there really isn't. And we have to fix, you know, one part of the problem because it affects all these other problems that maybe you didn't even think that they actually affected each other. And it's just a big spiral of connectivity. And getting back to framing these complex issues to a 10-year-old audience. Yes, now back know, to whenever, Surfer. <laughs> whenever they try to say, whenever they try to come up with some kind of excuse for the Silver Surfer not being completely accountable for the actions he committed while under the service of Galactus, there's always a part of me that goes, ah, come on. <laughs> but remember the target audience, it's for kids. Next thing I want to bring up for this episode is Zen Law's complacency. This is hammered home a lot more in the Stan Lee comic. It reminded me of the right-wing notion, very popular in libertarian circles, that history is a very cyclical thing in which tough, hard men create great societies with their strength and intellect. However, after the enemies are driven back, these societies ultimately grow soft, weak, and decadent. Then, bloated with the lack of conflict and infiltrated by inferiors, they collapse. The Stan Lee Zen Law often feels like that sort of era vulgaris society. Lee repeatedly has Rad emphasize that the society uh, that they live in, the perfect one, was built by the sweat of their forefathers, and that he can't enjoy the peace of Zen laws because he didn't earn it through his own personal struggle, which feels very bootstrappy to me. And also just the idea that w what could possibly be the perfect society? Because there's, like, how can you objectively come to that conclusion? Yeah, because I feel like everyone who's off saying a perfect society has some sort of secret bigotry hidden away about the undesirables. I mean, literally, Thomas More's utopia has slaves in it. <sighs> and I don't think, at least the way humans are built, 
currently at the moment we can actually build a proper utopia just because humans psychologically biologically we always need another hill to conquer we need to feel busy and important and whereas zen law is like this brave new world where every single caprice is instantly gratified and every single instance of boredom is amused they aren't literally taking soma in the cartoon they're a bit more of like a we're better than you come here and learn from us we're so enlightened i thought that it was a school maybe that's because of like bald guy in a marvel comic is professor x Maybe a little bit. It, it, it just keeps coming up because Stan Lee, like, throughout the Silver Surfer comic, constantly rails against man's warlike nature. Well, However, if he, if he had his own solo series in 1968, you think of all the bad shit that happened. Just in 1968, it's not surprising that he wanted there to be a utopia in his comic. And at the same time, the Silver Surfer is still at least ostensibly a superhero, although he's removed so far from, like, the Superman-Batman paradigm that he kind of barely is. That's still, the trappings of the genre means that he has to fight people. All right, so... Do you, who's more of a superhero, the Punisher or the Silver Surfer? That's a hard question. Really? I, I thought you'd immediately be like the Silver Surfer. Yeah, here or there, there are a lot of outliers. I think the only reason Blade is considered a superhero is because he lives in a universe that has other superheroes in it. He's just the weird vampire guy. Yeah, and I think you can move Punisher or Silver Surfer and maybe even Doctor Strange into that. Uh, yeah, the surfer is beholden to the trappings of the genre, despite the fact that he's a sad emo boy who would like to pontificate about how the world is crazy and he needs to find meaning. Yeah, this is probably why they did cast Lawrence Fishburne to be his voice. Yeah, having Morpheus do that is, uh, he's had some experience. <laughs> Uh, the next one we're talking about is Antibody, an episode co-written by Brody, a gentleman named Michael Stephen Gregory, and Harlan Ellison, great science fiction writer who, in Star Trek context, is responsible for City on the Edge of Forever, often argued as the best one. Yes, but as uh, you gave me for Christmas because of my birthday, the original screenplay to City on the, on the Edge of Forever is bad. Harlan Ellison can come back as a ghost and berate me, but it's bad. This is why you need editors, because the actual episode is amazing. It's great. That's bad. Okay, well, if we end up doing, like, individual episodes of Star Trek, we can go into that more. Yeah, like I said, I'm not going to go off, because I think we've already used up our tangent allowance for this episode, Um, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but no, it's 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 just not good. Antibody, the Silver Surfer is approached by Nova, the woman who replaced him as Galactus's herald in previous episodes. Galactus is dying of some kind of mysterious cosmic ailment, and the Silver Surfer needs to save him. The word cosmic is thrown around a lot in this. It just means space here. Yeah, in Marvel, the word cosmic is used about as often as, say, the Lovecraft mythos uses Eldrick. Yeah, more or less. Uh, yeah, Nova drafts the Silver Surfer to save Galactus, saying that, you know, if Galactus dies, anything that he's touched with the cosmic essence is going to die along with him, including both himself, Nova, and his beloved Shalabal. <laughs> the Surfer agrees under the condition that Galactus reveals what he knows about Zenla's location, which Galactus promises in a technically not a lie fashion. Yeah, I was about to be like, dude, you gotta be more specific when talking to the devil, man. Yeah, it was very, very monkey's paw promise. Yeah, have you watched any, well, actually, like, probably not, but have you watched any of the Twilight Zone, man? <laughs> the Silver Surfer enters Galactus's body and uses his abilities to destroy the Scourge a la Fantastic Voyage. Meanwhile, Nova protects Galactus from the Wanderers, a vindictive group of nomads made up of the survivors of Galactus's previous feasts. These are the people who put the Surfer on trial in that different episode. When the Surfer gets to the center, he finds that Galactus is being infected by this creature that was grown on a planet like for the specific purpose of tricking Galactus into eating it so he can infect him from the inside, or she. The entity is voiced by a woman. It's this one-eyed Lovecraftian horror that... <laughs> like, speaking of Eldritch... <laughs> yeah, it resembles a Doctor Strange villain called Shuma Gorath, although she is never explicitly referred to as such. She looks like a starfish with a big eyeball. 
The Surfer defeats her with the assistance of Galactus, not before he is taunted by the sentient essences of the various planets that Galactus has consumed. Yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. After Galactus is saved, he reveals to the Surfer that in his anger over the Silver Surfer's betrayal, he hurled Zen Law so far away that not even he is aware of its present location. Yeah, I mean, I can understand, but I'm still like, Cough out, cough out, cough out. <laughs> yeah, Nova promises that she's going to use her innate mutant ability to find anything that she's looking for to locate Zen La. She doesn't. Yeah, okay, I was a little confused by uh, Nova's design because she has, like, these two giant, like, flip forks in her head. And I was like, is that her hat? Like, you know, Scarlet Witch's headpiece? Or does she just have a really big forehead? No, that's part of her face. Oh, really? I feel bad. I mean, I have a big forehead, but hers is, like, big. And speaking of which, the character is called Nova, or Frankie Ray, before she was transformed. In the comic, she was introduced as the love interest of the Human Torch by Roy Thomas and George Perez in Fantastic Four number 164. Later on, John Byrne gave her flame powers comparable to the Human Torch, and she briefly joined the team. The caused friction with, you know, the thing, Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman over her eager willingness to kill. She eventually offers to become Galactus's herald because of her looser morality. She is cleaned up quite a bit in the show. She flat out says that she only takes Galactuses to uninhabited worlds to feast Yeah, upon. she feels very, uh, like, 90s chipper adventure girl. Yeah, I found her very grating in her yes. handful of appearances. Uh, unfortunately, I have to agree. <laughs> the story itself has some parallels to a John Byrne storyline in Fantastic Four where Mr. Fantastic is put on trial by various aliens for rescuing Galactus. His defense is that in the Marvel Universe, Galactus is a, sort of an apex predator and his culling of worlds is a necessary element of the universe's ecosystem, that we would become overgrown if Galactus didn't wipe out billions of people at a time. Womp, womp, womp. That's my opinion. And the last episode we're going to be discussing is The Forever War, which is credited to Brody, Mark Hoffmeyer, and DC Fontana, often argued as the greatest Star Trek writer of all time. Oh yeah, when I was a kid, I was so excited when I realized that DC is fit for Dorothy. Yeah, the plot of this one, it opens with an important Kree general being sucked into some kind of bizarre anomaly. Yeah, he looks like Buff Papa Smurf, because I was like, Papa Smurf! <laughs> we never see him again. Yeah! <laughs> uh, the Silver Surfer then approaches the Kree uh, homeworlds, begging for information about Zen Law's location. A Kree general agrees to provide him with this information, or at least to give him an audience with the Kree Supreme Intelligence. Uh, the Kree Supreme Intelligence is an artificial intelligence that is made up of the various great uh, leaders in Kree past, all just sort of downloaded into one matrix. Yeah, he looks like Meatwad. Whereas in the Captain Marvel movie, much prettier. Yeah, I was like, he looks like Meatwad. <laughs> He's meatwad with tentacles. Yeah, basically, and probably a little bit smarter. They want the surfer to go into the anomaly and do some readings as to what the hell happened to that general they in give exchange him the magic. for it. Yeah, they give him a magic belt. Yeah, they give him a magic belt that'll record <laughs> everything. Um, after he enters the anomaly, the surfer bumps into a warrior named Adam Warlock. He is the champion of his own race, who was created explicitly to drive off the Kree invasion. For untold ages, he has been battling phantoms of his Kree enemies in an endless Groundhog Day-style time loop. Yeah, honestly, that, I mean, I, that is my idea of hell, is doing the same thing over and over again with no way to escape. Unlike, say, Bill Murray, Warlock doesn't seem to have any knowledge that he's in the time loop. His memory resets every time the Kree bad guys come in. But the Surfer notices and just sort of tricks him into leaving the Cosmic Anomaly. Then, Warlock comes to his homeworld, which has been completely destroyed in the eons that he has been trapped in the time loop, which does not bode well on him. The Surfer and Warlock return to the Kree throne world, where the Kree Supreme Intelligence reveals that he didn't really give much of a shit about that journal. He just wanted Adam Warlock pulled out of the anomaly because <laughs> he is one of the few beings that was able to drive off a Kree invasion, so he wants to, like, harvest his DNA in order to create better Kree warriors. Yeah, it's like, wow, they're a bunch of eugenicists. 
In a little bit. Surfer manages to free Warlock and himself from the Kree Supreme Intelligence and promises Warlock that he'll find a new world for him to come to in order to find a new life for himself. But Adam Warlock would prefer to return to the Time Anomaly and relive his glory of combat over and over again for all of eternity. He is not comfortable with the ugly truths that go beyond his personal conception of honor. Personally, I feel out of all of these episodes that we've covered, this one feels the most like a Star Trek episode. Yeah, it does. You could be, you could very easily replace all of the characters with Star Trek characters. You know, the only one that I think comes close is another episode we're not going to be talking about in detail. Inner Visions, this one is written by Brody along with Alan Swayze. This is the one where the surfer tries to warn a planet of an incoming attack by Thanos, but finds that the population is too immersed in a virtual reality dream world to mount a defense or even notice the surfer warning them. Yeah, that also sounds like a Star Trek episode. That comes up in a lot of sci-fi novels. Brave New World is one, uh, and, you know, that whole amusing ourselves to death type of vibe where people are just placating themselves with superficial pleasures rather than focusing on the more... Uh, Ready Player One. Yeah, Ready Player One is about to bring that up. Although Ready Player One uh, is a little self-indulgent in the distractions to be a uh, proper allegory, a I little? think. A little. Have you tried to I, have you tried to read those books? <laughs> I only read the first one. To be honest, I didn't hate it. Oh, there's another one now. As I mentioned before, The Forever War is named after a novel. Uh, the book itself is an account of the author's Vietnam experiences in space opera drag. It is also a response to Robert Heinlein's novel Starship Troopers, a science fiction novel that glorifies war in a way that often gets very fashy. Are we going to have an episode of Star Trek Troopers? Starship Troopers? The Starship Troopers movie is on my list because I love that movie and I hate that book. <laughs> like, it got even worse when I realized that the bugs were supposed to be Chinese communists because they're outbreeding us and they need to be wiped out for freedom. Uh, that's my opinion. <laughs> I figured uh, I should talk a little bit about Adam Warlock as a character because he has shown up in the MCU, uh, at least in a random cameo yeah, at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I forgot about that, and then I was like, oh yeah, he was, he was already in there. Adam Warlock was created by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee as a character known only as him in Fantastic Four number 66, published in 1967. He was created by evil scientists that conquered the world, but he's supposed to be the perfect human. So after he was birthed from his cocoon, Warlock immediately transcended petty human wants and left the Earth to seek meaning. Roy Thomas picked up the character a few years later and gave him a solo book where he is tasked with expelling an evil influence upon an Earth that doesn't have superheroes on it. He finds acolytes to help him out, but is betrayed by one of them and is executed by the society he's trying to enlighten. Uh, did his acolyte who betrayed him uh, betray him with a kiss? Well, yeah, he did. Oh, uh, you know, you're I'm like, you're talking about Jesus, aren't you? Yeah, Warlock <laughs> is then resurrected after he's executed. <laughs> and in doing so, he redeems the very people who persecuted him. And yes, the symbolism is as obvious as I just described it. Yeah, Aaron, that'll give Lion Jesus Aslan a run for his money. <laughs> Yeah, Roy Thomas envisioned his Adam Warlock storyline, which he handed off to other writers after a few issues, as a cosmic superhero version on Jesus Christ Superstar, which was doing very well at the time of the uh, comic I publication. I mean, valid. Jesus Christ Superstar is a very good musical. <laughs> I am not crazy about Jesus Christ Superstar, but we're going to do another episode about that Yeah, at some point. am I going to be your co-host for that? Because I'll sing all the songs for you. Yeah, Jim Starlin... <laughs> who I've mentioned before when he was creating Thanos and writing the Silver Surfer series himself, took over Warlock and, instead of making him Space Jesus, made him a paranoid schizophrenic with a messiah complex. Once again, he has a psychology background. Warlock's arch-nemesis during this period was the Magus, who turned out to be a corrupted Warlock from the future. When Adam Warlock's home planet is creating other warlocks in an arms race that ends up destroying each other, those warlocks resemble the Magus. 
Oh, oh, that's cool. Starlin would later have Adam Warlock battle Thanos over the Infinity Gems, this concept that Starlin came up with, with, you know, a bunch of multicolored space rocks that would give its bearer ultimate power over the universe, especially if they put them in the glove. They made a movie about that. Let's not talk about that movie. <laughs> Please, let's not. <laughs> well, instead, let's talk about the cast of this cartoon. Uh, most of them are voice actor lifers. A lot of them showed up on previous Marvel cartoons, particularly X-Men, the animated series. It was very weird to hear Magneto's voice coming out of a scroll's mouth for okay, me. Well, that's my experience with uh, listening to John DiMaggio, because to me, my first exposure to him was Dr. Draken and Kim Possible, and then hearing him as Jake the dog, or more shockingly, Bender. I'm like, oh, what's happening here? I probably came up with him earlier, but I first noticed him as a presence as Bender, so just closing my eyes whenever I watch Adventure Time, it's just Jake the human hanging out with Bender. Yeah, it's like, kiss my shiny metal ass! <laughs> oh, yeah, the Silver Surfer is voiced by a gentleman named Paul Essiembe. You may have a hard time believing this, but the Surfer is often considered an obnoxious wet blanket. He has a very theatrical way of talking. I mean, he was also he was doing the milk and the giant cow gesture a few times. <laughs> he does that so much. <laughs> CMB does it. He grounds the surfer about as much as anyone possibly could, which is not at all. I mean, Lawrence Fishburne made him a snooze. One of Stan Lee's very final uh, comic book scripts was a miniseries where he like interacted with various characters he had uh, co-created and written over the years. And the Silver Surfer, since the Surfer is one of Lee's favorites, is in one of them. Stanley is kidnapped by Galactus and tasked with getting the Silver Surfer to stop droning endlessly on about epistemiology. <laughs> and oh. Lee ends up getting infected by the Surfer's very pompous vocabulary and starts blathering to the Galactus. And the story ends with Galactus going, oh boy, now I got two of them. Yeah. We've already brought up a couple of times that Lawrence Fishburne voiced the, the Silver Surfer <laughs> in the 2007 Fantastic Four movie. Yeah, I can't is, believe I saw that in theaters. Yeah. I saw the I, first one. I didn't see it in theaters. <laughs> yeah, and you're the comics guy. But to be honest, I don't think Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer is as bad as everyone says it is. I mean, Galactus being a cloud is dumb. and um, It was okay. Yeah, I thought that the characters were interacting with each other in a much more humorous way. I thought the wedding scenes were fun. Yeah, I just remember my dad didn't like it because of how the military was portrayed. Ineffectual in the face of the cloud, yeah. No, he meant that they were being a dick to the Silver Surfer. Well, why wouldn't they be a dick to the Silver Surfer? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, moving on. James Blendick is Galactus, which the second you heard him, it's like, oh, that guy's clearly a voice acting lifer. Yeah, and honestly, I swear to God, I've heard this man in like a billion places that can't place him. Yeah, he easily gives Galactus a sense of grandiloquence. He sounds like he's a very important man with his deep, resonant voice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Marvel Universe has many, many stoner logic takes on cosmic personifications. Galactus is one of the earliest versions and among the most popular. Another one that pops up in the Silver Surfer show that I think is very aesthetically pleasing is the Marvel Universe's concept of eternity. Eternity as a person. It's essentially a silhouette of a caped figure with an opera mask whose body is made out of outer space. That actually sounds pretty cool. Yeah, he is super cool looking. The Galactus is rendered and Eternity is rendered with that ugly 90 CGI, which became instantly dated three years later. Honestly, as I rewatched the series, it kind of grew on me. I think Galactus is actually pretty cool looking. Yeah, on the show. I really liked all of the scenes of inside his body. I was like, this is actually really cool. The art is Nice. It made me think of, like, PlayStation 1 games I played a lot when I was 11 or 12, like Descent. And I guess the last person we could bring up is Camilla Scott as Shalabal. <laughs> Might have the most thankless role in the entire series. Yeah, she's just there to be a lady in motivation. It's, it's hard to find a single line she utters throughout the series. It doesn't feel like it was My just boilerplate. My love, you don't have to go. Take me with you. Yeah. She's fine. She does as well as anyone possibly can with, with that sort of thing. Really talking a bit more about Chalabal when they discuss the aborted second season. 
But first, more themes that are more general, not episode-specific. First thing, like most science fiction shows, the Silver Surfer wears its allegories very much on its sleeve. It is difficult to find science fiction that is just about the future or outer space is, you know, just pure speculation. It is often about how the future or outer space is being used as a mirror to reflect upon the present. Which the Silver Surfer is very much trying to do that, but using its psychedelic imagery to give a message to 10-year-olds, but also being conscientious of the fact that there is a significant demographic that is (laughs) a bit older than 10. More on that in a bit. Another thing I wanted to bring up was the concept of loneliness, because the Silver Surfer is a very lonely figure. Yeah, I feel I felt bad for him. It's just him and his surfboard, and his surfboard doesn't even have a personality or talk. Uh, that uh, gives me a seg into uh, the beloved Dan Slott and Mike Allred run, where they decided to give the board a personality. Yes, that's such a good idea. Yeah, he, he turns into... Well, he doesn't. He, the board doesn't talk. It it can manifest images in response to the Aww. Silver Surfer talking to it, and it seems to have the intelligence of a puppy. That's actually cute. It's kind of like you know Wilson. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and also during the slot Allred run, they decided to give the Silver Surfer a Doctor Who companion. Okay. Yeah, her name is Dawn. She is a human woman who befriends the Silver Surfer and always wanted to get out of her home in Cape Cod, so she got to see the galaxy with him. Okay. During the story, she gives a lot of, like, audience surrogate perspective uh, statements upon it. When they explore the Silver Surfer being directly responsible for the deaths of trillions of people, it is Dawn reacting to that because she didn't know that about Mm -hmm. the Silver Surfer when she got to know him. And that complicates her relationship with him considerably. But... One of the main benefits of Dawn being in that Silver Surfer series is that it gives the Surfer someone to talk to besides himself. Yeah, that's important. And, uh, well, that also brings me, here's my question. So, not to borrow again from Star Trek, but we, at the Silver Surfer, is he fully functional? Yes, the Silver Surfer is capable of having sex. Okay, I'm like, is he like the vision, or is he like data? Yeah, sometimes he's <laughs> sometimes he's drawn to be a Ken doll, but sometimes he got the outline of little shorts. <laughs> or what? He just has like you know a bulge or something, or artistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Michael Chabon uh, wrote a think piece about superheroes and how they're designed. And you, yeah, yeah, you know, when you tell someone to describe a superhero, you're just like, oh, they have a cape. You think about it, most superheroes don't actually have capes. And he keeps describing various things that you associate with superheroes, like a mask or a cowl. But no, there are exceptions to that. And the final thing he brings up is the Silver Surfer, who is a tinted naked person. <laughs> Yet somehow you look at him and you know he's a superhero. Oh. So what does it mean? Is it just is it just their posture? Okay, here's something really funny. My friend Riley, um, they're taking a comics writing class, a comics writing class right now, and they got to read Watchmen for the first time. And Riley didn't realize that in the movie adaption of Watchmen, you do see Doctor Manhattan's penis. She just thought it was only in the comic. I'm like, no, 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 they put it in the movie too. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if I'm ever going to do an episode on the Watchmen movie, but general consensus amongst the comics fans is that the Watchmen movie got all of the superficial elements of the story right while completely missing the point of the subtext. Yeah, honestly, to me, I think the only part of Watchmen that's worth watching is the opening, like the fight with the comedian and murderer, and then the times are a-changing, and then that's the best part of the movie, and you can turn it off. Yeah, I generally agree with the consensus where, you know, didn't see the forest for the trees. Uh, Zack Snyder's an Ayn Rand objectivist follower, so I'm not surprised by that. Mm. But uh, getting off topic again, one other thing I wanted to talk about, which I've been seeing throughout, is uh, forcing superhero stories to age along with their audience. You know, this is even prevalent, as I said, in the Stan Lee series, because during late 60s Marvel, the characters had caught on with college students in addition to Marvel's target demo, which would be like 9 to 12 year olds. Lee writes with a certain degree of distant tongue-in-cheek humor. He took his wife's advice to try to write a superhero comic that he would find amusing personally. 
And with the Silver Surfer, he just sort of took that to its end point because he found that, you know, the college kids were responding to any kind of allegories he had to Vietnam or the civil rights movement or any other things that were going on during the 1960s in the superhero comics at the same time. But still trying to make it accessible to the 10-year-olds and have the Silver Surfer fight alien invasions occasionally. It's a lot, and Lee was not trained to do that for himself. There are a lot of people who love that series, and I just can't. You know, I think that, I think that you, you can have, like, let's just say different versions of the same story, and for those different versions or adaptions to have their own meanings, like, you know, goofy Lego Batman movie is valuable as a piece of art. Same thing with The Dark Knight. Like, they're both different interpretations of the character. They're accessible to different people. I don't think that, you know, your your interest and viewpoints on a piece of media will change as you age, but I feel that you can't really expect like the piece of media itself to mature as you do because it's not, you're not going to be the target audience forever. Superhero comics started changing with the advent of the direct market, with comic books being sold in specialty shops that exclusively sold comics as opposed to, say, pharmacies or newsstands. And when that happened, comics readership started shifting more and more to adult fans with comprehensive knowledge of decades of comics minutiae who would write letters complaining about continuity errors with an issue of Batman from 15 years ago that nobody remembered anymore. And since those guys were willing to shell out hundreds of dollars for, like, old back issues and then statues and stuff like that, comics started becoming more geared towards that audience and became a lot more insular and self-referencing and incestuous and impenetrable to anyone who hadn't read the previous 20 years of continuity. And after Watchmen and The Dark Knight Returns became big hits, a lot of people took the wrong lessons from those books and decided that people liked them because he was taking these childhood superhero characters and then grafting gratuitous amounts of sex and violence on them and sort of emphasizing that more, leading to things like, say, Spawn. Yeah, I honestly, though, like, the dark, gritty stuff does not always mean that it has more depth to it than... Something that is meant for children. As someone who has read a lot more American comic books than you, I can tell you that almost none of it does. <laughs> like I said, yeah. that stuff is incredibly juvenile, just very in a very different way. Well, when you said impenetrable to people who hadn't read the billion years worth of continuity, that, that's me. Like, I read a lot of comics, but superhero comics, unless there's like a certain arc or something, I usually don't find myself reading them. In the early 2000s, when the X-Men and Spider-Man movies came out, Marvel was still, like, licensing its comics properties out to movies, thinking that that would be a good way to sell more comics. That seems like a very quaint notion now. Yeah, I mean, I watched the X-Men movies because I had a huge lady crush on uh, Hugh Jackman. Mm. And Marvel was astonished to find that the people who flocked to see the X-Men movie did not find the X-Men comic books to be accessible. Yeah, I tried to read them, and I just went back to rewatching the movies over and over again because I was a lonely 14-year-old with no friends. And that's a problem superhero <laughs> comics still have, even though superheroes are more popular than they've um, pretty much ever been, is that the comics still kind of crawled up their own ass, and <laughs> they don't know how to honor their lengthy history while making sure that every comic is potentially somebody's first. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I remember the first, no wait, I actually do remember what the first comic book I ever read was. It was a Disney's Beauty and the Beast little teenage belle going around dealing with annoying people in her, her village. That's not even a superhero comic, and I had the context for it because at that point I'd seen Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, that gets back to just the way things are going in the industry, where both the Marvel and the DC Comics lines are owned by these giant mega corporations who in all likelihood see them as sort of a farm league where they can beta test various characters and concepts before they adapt them into the movies and the cartoons and the TV shows and the video games and the stuff that makes the real money. I suppose that's something, but it's kind of sad that the linchpin of the entire comics industry is that. Yeah. It's like a tail wagging the dog now. Yeah. 
I'm glad that there are comics for me, and even superhero comics for me, but there should be superhero comics for 10-year-olds, because that's who's supposed to be reading them. Yeah, you know, and I and I work, I work at a bookstore, and kids come in, and they're all really jazzed to read Dogman. Like, kids love Dogman. He kind of was originally like a half-dog, half-cop, but now he's a superhero dog that has a sidekick named Cat Kid. And I've read a couple of them. They're cute, they're fun, and I'm glad kids are reading them. I mean, I grew up reading Cat and Underpants is also by Dave Pilkey and like some of his parents are like, I want my kids reading Dog Man and I'm like, I read Cats Underpants and I turned out fine. Just let your kids read whatever they want. Let your kids read comics. That was another Michael Chabon thing piece or, you know, his kids are into Captain Underpants. He decided <laughs> that even though that character didn't really bother him, he'd like conduct himself around the kids like he thinks that Captain Underpants is stupid and he doesn't approve of it just so the kids think they're getting away with something. And you know what? Captain Underpants, I gotta say, does have jokes in it that are for the parents. Like there was one adult joke in there that I got because I grew up watching the Three Stooges. Like the uh, George and Harold attend Jerome Horowitz Elementary School. <laughs> Jerome Horowitz is Curly Howard's given name. Oh, that's yeah. cute. It's difficult to toe that line because, once again, that Silver Surfer cartoon is very galaxy-brained. It is very, I took a hit from this joint, and now I'm going to do some 10th grade philosophy pontification. Yeah, I mean, I, as much as I did enjoy watching it three episodes with you in order to do this, I would not watch this of my own accord. I mean, I love campy, goofy stuff, but it's just not me. It's not for me. And it's difficult to do, you know, we're going to throw these things out for the college kids and for the parents who are watching it with their kids, but we're still going to keep this accessible to the kids. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. And when something pulls it off, they make it look easy. Silver Surfer doesn't quite get there, although it's one of the reasons why my vocabulary is as pompous as it is. Mine was from Wishbone. Yeah, we brought that up. Yeah. All right, well, that's everything in my notes, and... We've got quite a bit of ground covered oh, already. Yeah, yeah. I, yes. thought this, I thought this was going to be one of our shorter episodes, but it clearly is not. Oh, I, I figured I could <laughs> blather on and on about this. And I was right. Yeah, I mean, I don't have any other notes about My only one was about is he fully functional or not. I was just here to be the soundboard for you. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, like Jason Lee's characters in Mallrats. You're like, hey, that's superheroes. His penis work. <laughs> yes, the Silver Surfer's penis works. <laughs> I just always think of the scene from The Shape of Water where the main character's friend realizes that she's made love to the fish man and she asks, like, how does he gotta, you know, and she explains, you know, with her hands how it works. And it's probably one of the funniest moments in the movie. <laughs> oh, bringing things back. While Lawrence Fishburne voiced the Silver Surfer, Doug Jones was the model. Hey! I mean, he's in everything these days. Yeah. Uh, with that, I think that's another episode in the can. Woo! Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.